with the menstrual cycle, it's like you've got to focus on both the liver and the gut. So if we support the liver to encourage it to choose a safer pathway and then also support the gut so that we make sure we're getting that estrogen out. You're listening to the Well Woman Podcast. I'm your host, Gemma Lee, women's menstrual cycle educator, natural fertility coach and daytime mermaid. This is a place where we discuss all things periods, poo, ovulation, fertility and sex. Join me weekly as we rediscover our menstrual cycles, unlock its superpowers, and guide you back into your cyclical nature. You're tuning in to episode 226 of the Well Woman podcast. Today, you are joined by myself and also amazing Talita Vonya. Talita is a fellow Aussie. She lives in Newcastle, Australia, and she is a fertility awareness educator with postgraduate studies in biomedical science, focusing on nutrition science and reproductive endocrinology. Talita is an author, student herbalist, and runs an online nutrition and fertility awareness consulting business. She also, though, has a plant-based food and women's health blog, is dedicated to her Instagram, where she is always posting amazing educational content about women's health, nutrition, planners, medicine, yada, yada, all the things that women need to know. And so I reached out to Talita to have her on the show to talk about some really key aspects, or really, I should say, key organs of the body that are important when it comes to a healthy menstrual cycle. And we are chatting about liver and gut health today. We also have lots of other really fun topics where we talk about luteal phase and how to make the luteal phase super fun and lovable. We talk about liver health nutrients, why the liver is an important organ, and then also why the gut in general is an important organ, what it does and their responsibilities in regards to a healthy cycle. And then we dive into a really juicy topic about fiber, about plants, about food in general, and how we can have great fiber and great nutrients from our plant-based foods. And then we also talk about the things you can do to support your gut and your liver if you have any kind of hormonal imbalance of any sort and you're looking to improve your menstrual cycle. So this is a really fun episode. We both have giddy time here and um, I hope you're going to enjoy it as much as we did chatting. Talita, welcome to the Well Woman podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. I'm really excited to, to speak with another fellow Aussie. I'm just feeling like I'm just smashing out all the Aussies on the podcast <laughs> lately, which is so nice. So thank you for being a fellow Aussie and doing this, this at a really reasonable time of the day. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> I agree. It is. So thank you. Now, we're going to be talking a lot about hormones. We're going to be talking a lot about detoxification and pathways and nutrients and liver health and all the things that really make up a great human being and a healthy human being. But before we do, tell us what day of your cycle are you on today and how are you checking in with your body in this moment? I am on cycle day 25 and I actually had quite a delayed ovulation this month. So it's a little bit different and I'm feeling good because it's, this is my favorite part of the cycle. Like the first week of luteal is always my favorite. I am the most energized and also calm and grounded in this space. So yeah, I've got a very busy day today. So I feel like the whole checking in with myself might happen in the evening when it's all over, <laughs> but generally good energy's good. Um, mood's good. It's a, it's a good time of the month for me. Mm, I love that. And I also really like that this is your fave time of the cycle, this first yes. week post ovulation, first week as you integrate luteal. 
and I know you said that like you just feel like you've got good flow and energy, but like <clears throat> why would you pick this as your top over other times just to inspire those who think this might be the worst time of their cycle? I don't like the second part of luteal, but I I thought it's always been me. Like this has always been, I think because I respond very well to progesterone in, in the sense that it's very calming and grounding for me. And so as soon as my progesterone hits, I just find that I'm less vulnerable. I'm, I don't know how to explain it. Just, yeah, grounded. Like, and I just feel more in control and like I can take on more. So I think it's because my body really agrees with progesterone. Why I like it more? Well, because in my past, like if my longstanding hormone imbalance that I've had was very low hormones, so both estrogen and progesterone. And low estrogen in the follicular phase feels like rubbish. So I struggled a lot with intrusive thoughts right after my period due to the low estrogen and just feeling very unstable in that phase. And so as soon as my progesterone would hit enough for ovulation, I just immediately feel better. And it's mm. even though I no longer have that and now I feel pretty good in my follicular phase too, I still love this phase the most, like this first part of luteal. I like that. Thank you for sharing. I'm a big fan of the luteal phase too. I know a lot of people are like, it's the worst part of my life. And I understand everyone's got different things, especially with like PMDD or extreme PMS and health imbalances and all the things. But um, I actually really believe the luteal phase can be so, so special if you will like discover it in that way. So thanks for sharing that. Hopefully that inspires those who are listening. Now, those who are listening, I know you just mentioned about low hormones and both your progesterone and estrogen being low. So I'm sure that's going to be a part of your story. So tell us, how did you get into the health world? And why did you decide before we hit record, you were saying that, you know, your projection to the future for your, you know, desire of career or, you know, your service to the world is definitely going to be around the cyclical nature of the woman, you know, you could say to menopause and beyond right through. And I love that. So tell us, how did you get to this point where that is that vision and that service passion that you have? Yeah. So I guess I've always been in health, I guess. I used to be a dental hygienist before I, and I absolutely hated that. And really what sparked my passion for women's health is of course my personal story. And it's a long story, but basically I got married very young and I was very underweight when I got married and I chose the Implanon birth control contraception and that did not agree with me. And it basically got spotting the whole time I was on it. I felt very bad on it. Eventually I had to, I stuck with it for eight months because um, my doctor kept telling me my body would adjust, but it didn't. When I eventually got it out, uh, my body didn't ovulate. Not that I knew that at the time. I had no idea what was going on at the time. And because of that, I didn't have progesterone. And actually what happened was, this is why I love progesterone so much, the lack of ovulation, lack of progesterone caused me to have seizures. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I went from being perfectly normal sort of person to um, having extreme panic and anxiety and seizures. And the seizures did not go away until I ovulated again, which was about a year later. I was put on antidepressants and they also made me worse. They gave me a very horrendous withdrawal reaction. So I had quite a few years of my life dealing with a very, very severe anxiety disorder, 
which all started because of a hormone imbalance. <laughs> and I think what happened was I did not know what was going on. No one knew what was going on. I had all the tests, all of that. No one knew what was wrong with me. And I just made changes to my health based on general advice, like just general health advice. And I got better. I got into nutrition and that got me a lot better, which is why I started a food blog. Initially, it was just a food blog. And it wasn't really until after the birth of my son where I understood my whole experience. Like I understood why the seizures happened. I understood progesterone. And it was sort of like in that moment of finally getting closure over what the hell had been wrong with me for all these years, because this is probably about, this was about seven years of struggling. I just went, I never want another woman not to know. I never want another woman to just be so in the dark over how horrible they feel and not get the answers. And yeah, that's, that was my little download purpose into the world. That's yeah. Closure over my experience is what did that to me. I love that. And so were you studying along this pathway too, like along this journey, had you already studied or was this as like, Oh, I want to go study this. Um, no, so I'm uh, still studying. <laughs> I was just doing my dental work during this time. And again, hated that. But after the birth of my son, I waited until he was about three and then I went and did post-grad and that was in reproductive endocrinology and nutrition. And that's kind of, you know, and then I did my fertility awareness training and then I'm still doing a herbalist training course. And I'm actually in the process right now of applying for a master's in reproductive endocrinology at the Uni of Sydney. So we'll see how that goes, but that's also something I've wanted to do in that. And I think my passion really is educating the masses, which is why I like to be online, because I just want the women, as many women as possible to learn about their bodies. Like, I just feel like our quality of life as women have, has been terrible, <laughs> really. And we just need, we just need better. We need better everything mm, for women. I agree. And yeah. I love, like, if you can't pick this up, Talita is very passionate about this, and this is why she's going back to do a master's, which is not a little five cent drop in the sand, well, you know. See if I get in. I have an interview right after this podcast, so keep your okay. We're, we're vibing all the good vibes, sending all the energy your way. That's very exciting. So, so congratulations yeah. on on all of that and the journey. And it's just it's just so interesting that you know I meet women who their journey has come about because of their own health experience, and then sometimes their journey comes about because of their personal professional experience. Um, and that leads them to like, okay, I just see all these people in pain or, you know, in discomfort. And I don't want that mm. no, just because I've never had, it doesn't mean that I can't want it. For, I don't want it for other people too. And that's really beautiful. I love that. And you mentioned about like not wanting others to have these experiences and also wanting them to know and have the knowledge, like the knowing mm-hmm. the knowledge. I kind of want to like skip all the questions so far that I've got <laughs> written down to ask you and just ask you, like, what do you think? It's a bit of a far out question, but what do you think is the missing piece for most people that you see in your consultancy that they just don't know about their women's health, about their own bodies? Like, what do you think is the missing piece? I mean, broadly, generally, I do think it's knowledge. I do. I do. I think generally women are suffering from a lack of knowledge. Like we don't understand how our body works and therefore we don't know how to live our life in a way that's supportive to our physiology. So I don't know. I think in my practice, I do a lot of educating. I, I do, and it, it is like I, I find that that general knowledge about basic 
female physiology is kind of lacking. I think the next thing is probably how to manage cortisol, like how to manage stress is Mm. something people don't know about either. But yeah, I don't know if I answered that properly, but no, 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 there's no wrong or right answer. It's just what you see as the, as the opportunity. Like there's so many, like Mm. I could be like, well, what about all the crappy ingredients that they use in foods and in homewares and cleaning products and that we've been using for the last number of decades that people don't even know are bad for you. And they just think, oh, yeah, like my fry pan can't be hurting my health. Seriously. Or like the food product that they sold me in this container, that can't be that bad for you. Um, I think there's a lot, like there's so many little factors to it. And knowing and the knowledge is so important. And I always like to say to Lita, imagine if so weird, the forefathers, but the grandmothers that were say six generations before us, if, and I know you're Romanian, so imagine your Romanian grandmothers, <laughs> if they had have, um, you know, known about their cycle in a way that they could have taught their daughters or their, and I think sons need to know too, and their sons. And then that had passed down, like imagine the different in body knowledge that we would have. Yes. Yeah. It'd be like being streetwise for your cycle. Yeah. Fortunately, at least in my culture, there's just so much shame around the period and um, and that sort of thing. So it's just period, menopause, all of that. Like you just don't speak about it. You just cover it up and deal with it. Like that's how it was always portrayed. And that's what's been passed down to me, I guess. And so, yeah, agreed. Like, and I'd love to change that moving forward. Like I would, I would like to see that. I would like society to change, to be much more aware of the differences in a woman and being able to adapt to that. Yeah. Mm, Good. Well, I'll support you. I love it. And she's (laughs) going to be doing her master's. So, (laughs) so let's talk about like those core things for, for women's health. I know that we discussed really talking about the liver and hormones Uh and detoxification and nutrients. And I think it's interesting. I've just come back from India and India is really, really like Ayurvedic health is all about the gut. And Chinese medicine is all about the liver. And it's just like, no, no, it's the liver. No, no, it's the gut. And I think Eastern medicine just does it so right anyway. But in your understanding, when it comes to the menstrual cycle, regardless of the age of the menstruator um, or the transition they might be moving through, what are the real foundational glands or organs in the body that we need to really focus on the most? Yeah. Okay. So I actually think adrenals, Mm -hmm. which is stress response is probably the biggest um, and then I do think liver and gut. So yeah, adrenals, liver, gut, brain health. But the brain, the brain takes care of everything. So yeah, those are definitely my top three picks. Mm, I, and I love that I asked that spontaneous question. I was didn't think about <laughs> asking you that before. But um, I like that because there's so many options. You know, we've got like what is it, 22 internal organs or something like that, and um, 600 plus muscles, and there's so much to choose from, and it's hard to kind of pinpoint because people are like just tell me the one thing I need to do, no. and then I will do that. Mm. And I think there's a lot of societal awareness around adrenals, around like caffeine and adrenaline and the stress factor out there, but when it comes to the liver and the gut. Some people have been listening and talking and reading about it, but others are just like so far off the page. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the liver and the gut, hey? Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> so let's start with the liver first. How mm-hmm. does the liver's, what role does the, the liver play in terms of the menstrual reproductive cycle and the health of that? Yeah, so the liver is responsible for 
processing, metabolizing, and sending for excretion all of our hormones. So estrogen, testosterone, cortisol, and adrenaline, like they all have to go through. So if we have problems with our liver, we can it can lead to a number of, of different things. And I would say the majority of estrogen dominance that we see has at least something to do with the liver. Mm. Um, but also things like thyroid, like thyroid is it's different. It's not so much like we're trying to get rid of the estrogen. Um, we're converting thyroid into its active form. 70% of that happens in the liver. So it's about turning the hormones from one form to another, either activating something or neutralizing it to be sent out of, uh, sent out of the body for excretion. So um, if that process isn't working well, we can have a whole range of imbalances um, coming up. Yeah. That's really good information for everybody listening. I was just reminiscing on a bit of a side story, but when I, so I've been in the nutrition world for like 17 years. I was a food science formulator before I got into like coaching and consulting. And I started out in nutrition before like moving into the cycle stuff. And I used to get a lot of models coming to work with me about cleaning up their skin and, you know, improving because before all of this, I was also a fashion designer and I worked in photography as a photographer. So it's very side tangent, but the first thing they were like, just tell me all the good foods. It's going to make me look lean. I've got this really big $30,000 paying job, but I need to be this size and I have to have this. And I'm like, well, you just need to work on your liver. Mm -hmm. And they're like, what do you mean? I need to work on my, I'm like, that's where it's all coming from. Mm-hmm. And you can eat all the good shit. And if your liver's still unhealthy, it's not going to accept any of the good stuff. So you need to work on your liver. And I was just having a little chuckle to myself while you were talking because that was 10 years ago. And still today, people are like, what? You need to work on the liver? What do I have to do for that? Oh, I don't yeah. want to give up drinking. I'm like, there's so many other things you can do. Yeah. Like that's one important aspect. But you mentioned processing and metabolizing and if it didn't have a hard job already doing all of the other things it needs to do, let alone just processing all the hormones, what can we do to really support our liver? Yeah. So the, I think the thing about the liver is um, that it is a very nutrient dependent organ. So it needs a lot of nutrition to perform its function. So I think really when we're looking at the liver, it is a matter of removing as many of the bad stuff as we can, like the environmental toxins that you're talking about in our plastics and our pans and foods and beauty products, all of that, and also um, alcohol and, and all those sorts of things, whatever is unnecessary, we should try to minimize it. I don't think we can ever be perfect with that. But then the other part is, is your liver got the nutrients that it needs to actually be performing its function? Mm. And I think for me personally, I know I have had a sluggish liver for a while. It's definitely improved. But I remember going to um, a few years ago now, going to some practitioner. He was not very good. (laughs) But he looked at me and he said, your, your liver is just so full of toxins. And I, and I said, I got really offended at that because I was like, excuse me, I never drink alcohol. All my beauty products are clean. I eat a whole foods a diet and, and all that. And But the thing is, I had spent so many years of my life not eating. Like I had anxiety for one, which was overburdening my liver. And because of my anxiety, I had what I would say, eating disorder territory, eating habits, right? Mm -hmm. So I spent 
many, many years of my life very, very depleted. And that can lead to toxic load just as much as putting in too much of the bad stuff. Mm. Yeah, it is that remove the bad stuff, but also add in a ton of the good stuff because we need it. It's like that one in one out theory. Like people think I can't eat chocolate anymore. It's like, well, actually you could eat chocolate, but what if you only made the chocolate, Yeah, you know, like just flipping that, that one in one out thing. That's really good. Great to know. And you mentioned about like, there's some really important nutrients that the liver like needs and loves. What are your top go-to liver nutrients or nutrients you need to be supported or consuming or um, obtaining in your food to support the liver? Yeah. So I would say a protein is a big one. So the liver uses a lot of different amino acids to get its jobs done. And that comes from protein. Magnesium is huge for everything, but it plays a very big role in the liver as well. And it's um, very good for processing estrogen and other hormones. B vitamins are also massive for the liver. They they play a crucial role in many things. And um, those are the top like main nutrients of the top of my head, but I would also say things like sulforaphane, things that come from cruciferous vegetables, um, and then all those beautiful nutrients that happen in all of our bitter foods that people don't eat very much of as well. They're very supportive of the liver. Mm, yeah, I, I love that. Thank you for sharing. It kind of, it's like the six tastes that we have. And I think Eastern medicine always talks about the six tastes really, really well, but it's like in Australia, at least, and any other Western country that's similar to Australia, it's yeah. like sweet, salty. Like they're like, <laughs> like there's only two. We don't need yeah. six. It's too complicated. Yeah. And that's where we don't, we don't get astringent. We don't get bitter. People like really throw their, you know, their face yeah. up at those kind of tastes. So little insight for everyone listening, make sure you're exploring the six tastes of all the food out there. All right. Great insights on the liver, Talita. Thank you. Let's talk about the gut. Mm-hmm. Now, most people just think of the gut around bloating, constipation, diarrhea, you know, things like leaky gut, IBS, but let's talk about the gut in relation to the menstrual cycle. Like how are, how are those two related? Right. So I think in, in the gut, we have this process where the the estrogen for example gets processed through the liver and then it gets sent to the gut and then if you have an overgrowth of bad bacteria or you have constipation in the gut it can take up that estrogen that has been packaged into an inactive safe form and reactivate it and send it back into your bloodstream which is one of the reasons we have estrogen dominance Mm -hmm. and Uh, this is not gut, but like going back into estrogen, we have different forms because when estrogen goes through the liver, you've got your normal estrogen from the ovary and then it chooses some pathways where it can take estrogen down. And a couple of them are not so safe. Like these are the ones that turns them into an intermediary metabolite. So basically what the liver is trying to do is turn a fat soluble substance, which is a hormone, which are made from fat into a water soluble substance so that it can be excreted out of the body through the urine and the gut, the stool and sweat, I guess. So it needs to be water-soluble to be able to get out. But then you have this intermediary stage where there's, um, depending on what process, like pathway your liver has chosen, depends how uh, aggressive your estrogen will be. And so that estrogen can be of a bad form, which is more likely to, 
get reconverted back in the gut, sent back into the bloodstream. And these are the estrogens that can build up over time and contribute to estrogen dominance and things like breast cancer and other estrogenic cancers over time. So to me, with the menstrual cycle, it's like you've got to focus on both the liver and the gut. So if we support the liver to encourage it to choose a safer pathway and then also support the gut so that we make sure we're getting that estrogen out. Yeah. A little bit of mind blow there for everybody who's listening. It's like, so the gut doesn't just help process my food. Um, (laughs) It's kind of like that circulating estrogen and people are like, why is my estrogen so high? And I'm like, well, if your body's making it every single cycle, it's like baking a cake every cycle. And then all of a sudden people aren't eating the cake. It's like, there's going to be a buildup of fucking cake if you don't deal with that, you know? So you need to be able to like get rid of it. And I used to teach, I used to like run a few workshops and I always refer to the gut and the liver like bananas in pajamas. And I can share this because we're like Aussie, like grow up, gr- growing yes. up Aussie adults. Bananas and pajamas, they're like B1 and B2. And when they're together, they work like two peas in a pod. And when they're not, they're like falling around and bouncing and hitting things. And they really are like twins and they work really well together. They have very different personalities, but they're <laughs> so essential for each other. And I really, really love that. So thank you. Anything else you want to add before I ask you the next question? I'm just firing them at you today. The gut. I mean, there's so much I could talk about the gut. I think my focus with the gut is uh, microbiome. I Mm. think I I don't, that would be long. So I don't know. No, that's all right. I was going to ask about, um, I know we talked about liver nutrients. And so I thought it'd be fitting to talk about gut nutrients. And most people think of the gut with, oh, I just need to take a probiotic, right? Like that's all I've got to do. And there's so many things that can be supportive. Like you mentioned for the liver, like protein, magnesium, B group vitamins, cruciferous vegetables, but for the gut, it's not just like one probiotic is every day is going to fix your gut. Right. So what if someone's like, oh, okay, I have estrogen dominance listening to this. Okay. Maybe I can start making some changes on my gut health. Like what are the gut nutrients or the gut changes you would recommend nutritionally? So I always look at diversity of plants. And so we know that big study on the microbiome that came out that found that the people with the best gut health microbiome, the most diverse microbiome, also had the greatest diversity of plant fibres. So it's really fibre that we're talking about here and the different, many different types of fibre in the foods. So what that study found is anyone that eats 30 plant foods and above per week has a better gut microbiome diversity, which is the foundation for health. And I I really don't understand putting in a probiotic when you have a depleted microbiome, for example. Like that's just not, as soon as you stop taking that probiotic and you're only taking in a few strands, like it's not the foundation. The foundation is the fibre. That's what brings in the diversity. And the more diverse your microbiome is, the better the health outcomes Mm. And honestly, I think if you get that right, I don't take any probiotics. Like if you just have a wide diversity of plants, you can have some probiotic rich foods. They're very good for you, but like you don't really even need them. I don't think I I don't. This is really good. I will say that I take a probiotic every day. Um, I had leaky gut really bad and I live, I'm part of a family with celiacs and I have the celiac gene. It's not activated. And I do find probiotics very supportive, but I was also just thinking when you said 30 plant foods and above a week, I was like, fuck, that's a lot of plants. And um, in my mind, I'm like, dig, 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 but like counting all the plant foods. Yeah. But it's important to understand that we're talking about fruits and vegetables. And then you're also talking about grains that come from plants. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Not like processed grains. We're talking about like 
red rice, quinoa, millet, you know, all of that stuff. There's a lot out there that mm-hmm. you can contribute. And, you know, I don't know whether that includes spices like chilies and stuff, yeah. but <laughs> so that you can easily, like, I just came back from India and Indonesia, like one meal has like 10 ingredients and they're all plant foods. So I think the more you can broaden your basket or your trolley or your grocery bag or wherever you shop with more color, you know, that's really going to be supportive, right? Yeah. And I like what you said about the color because just changing the color of something also adds diversity. So I say that um, to people, like say if they have a quinoa and they always have white quinoa, go go for the tricolored quinoa. Or if you have a rice, go for a wild rice or a red rice or a black rice. Like that also adds variety. And, yeah. and you're right, not just fruits and vegetables and it's whole grains, it's legumes, it's nuts and seeds, it's herbs and spices. It's all of that. Even oils, like they don't really have fiber, but still. The variety, it's not, it's actually not that hard. It sounds overwhelming, but I also think that it's <laughs> it's sad that we can't get that because because we're not, because the recent statistics are saying most people are getting 15 grams of fiber, minimum should be 30. Wow. Um, in, in Western is, that, is that a day? Yeah, so 30 grams is a minimum. And a lot of people are saying, well, actually it should be more than that, but First of all, you need to take that slow, but most people are getting half the recommended amount in the West of fiber that we need. And I just, I actually, I, for someone like me, I, it's actually so easy to get those 30 plants in. It's not that hard. So I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know where I was going to go with that. <laughs> <laughs> You're going in a great direction. Not as bad as it looks. And I think if you really think about it, you won't be so overwhelmed. But then at the same token, but we're not doing it. And I think in Australia and New Zealand, we think about like all these nutrients, but actually a survey out of New Zealand came back and saying fibre is the number one deficiency. Wow. There's so much that we could talk about with this. I think we could go on a big <laughs> rant down this rabbit hole. When I studied ancestral health, so I've studied like the Western way and the ancestral way. And that's, that's I really love like how, where did we fuck it up along the way? You know, mm-hmm. like we've been doing it for a long time and Something when I um, when I teach on nutrition is I actually categorize five macronutrients, proteins, okay. carbs, fats, fiber, and water, because people don't think fiber is as important as a, as yeah. a protein or a, but it is like, it's yeah. so important. And I, I think people don't really know what fiber actually is. They just think, oh, Metamucil or having a piece of all brand breakfast, you know, or having a piece of toast or eating some bread, making sure you get pasta in your diet. Like fiber isn't that, I don't want to say empty grain, but um, it fiber can be colorful, mm-hmm. you know, really colorful. So you mentioned there's a few different types of fiber. Would you like to just give us a run through on, on fiber? Oh, look, I, um, I'm not that knowledgeable, but the main ones are soluble and insoluble fibre. Yeah. There's a balance between the two that we need to have, but I think for people starting with constipation, we want to focus maybe on the soluble fibre first because if you're going too hard, too strong with the insoluble stuff, which is all the roughage, um, you can make your constipation work, the worst. Yeah. So that's one aspect. But what I really wanted to touch on is like I think the reason we don't know much about fibre, don't really understand it, is because for many years we didn't really see a purpose to it. We just were like, well, you can live without it, so what's the point? But now <laughs> <laughs> we're finding like microbiome research has exploded just in the past 10 or 15 years. And Hasn't it ever, yeah. Yeah. 
we're fine. Like, for example, I always use the flax seeds, which are high in fiber, but they are my example because the estrogenic benefits of flax seeds that help to balance your estrogen and prevent against breast cancer and all of that, they are found in the fiber component of the flax seed. Mm. So you took that out and you just had flaxseed oil, still very beneficial, but it doesn't have. So that fiber gets broken down by your microbiome into this active form called enterolactone. And that's what creates the positive benefit. So we have literal sort of life-giving quality of life <laughs> and all of these myriad of chemicals found in the fiber that we're still discovering today. So, isn't, it, it's, isn't it crazy that like there's so much we still don't know? Oh, Yes. So much. And I think, you know, I think back to like the juice revolution that was going on. Everyone was juicing, you know, around mm-hmm. 10 years ago. Like that was a really big thing to do. And don't get me wrong. I've done my fair share of juice cleanses, oh, but I was always fucking badly constipated afterwards and I could never get like a good, healthy stool going. I think people don't really understand that fiber can be in every diet really simply. Mm-hmm. If you add color, I'm always like, you need at least five colors. And yeah. maybe that is like the color of the pasta plus peas and broccoli and the garlic or something. I don't know. Um, with turmeric powder, like there's it, there's easy ways to kind of build it up, but people just don't recognize. And I think this is just my opinion, but I think people are eating food that's too it's empty food. Absolutely, yeah, it's it's not food. It's just the other stuff. Yeah. So you mentioned 15 grams of fiber is what people are getting on average, <laughs> but we need 30. What would 30 grams of fiber look like in a day? Roughly. Like if you were like how big is that in a in a mug of is, is 30 grams like it's half not a mug or like I, I will say, I don't know. I haven't counted how much fiber I have. <laughs> I I am almost exclusively plant-based and I get way above 30. Like I will get 70-ish, I would say, just being fully. But I just think if if you have if you're not eating a refined grain, because that's got a lot of its fiber stripped away, and if you're eating just a whole plants as much as possible, so a juice, for example, doesn't have the fiber because you've taken yeah. that out, you should hit it. Like if you if you are eating that variety of 30 plants a week, you should hit that and more. Yeah. Yeah. I just ask that because sometimes people, like the numbers are just a number. And like when we try to like picture it for them, they're like, oh, wow, that's a lot more than I thought it was going to be. And Yeah, I don't think it's as intimidating as people think. But you know what? I will have to. I'm going to measure 30 grams of brow- of like red rice and see how yeah. much that actually like size quantity wise because, yeah, there's fiber is important, people. We're just trying to get that across right now. <laughs> that fiber is really important for your gut health. It's really important for like supporting the estrogen that's bouncing around in your body and reducing your excess estrogen. This is really, really good, Talita. Thank you. Anything else you want to add to that? No, but you have inspired me to actually, I'm not, I'm very um, weary of like calorie counting and that sort of thing, because I know the mental health link. Totally. Yep. Yeah. So then I kind of just stay away from that with like knowing amounts. I just kind of broadly know some things, but it would be nice to have a visual representation of what 30 grams of fiber just to understand, like, yeah. I, I often think that, what is it, to get your average daily amount of vitamin E, which you can get from spinach, you'd have to eat like 40 cups of spinach mm. or something. I'm like, I'm like, you never can eat 40 fucking cups of spinach. It's no. like, 
even if you put it over four meals, like you're not Popeye and you're probably not going to get as much protein as what you think Popeye yes. would get anyway. So how do we get vitamin E in other sources whilst mm. we're also consuming spinach? And so I like visuals, especially when it's an audio yeah. thing like this, like a podcast, because people are like, oh, wow, that that's not that much. Maybe I really should up that a little bit. So yeah. I'm with you though. I'm not, I'm not a counter. Same time, I still focus more on the diversity of fight. Like I had a client that um, she had been plant-based for a long time. So she was hitting her fiber needs, but she still said after a session with me that fiber is what she um, got most out of that. And not that she wasn't having enough. It's just that her diet was very constrained. So it's like, it's still the diversity of the fibers that you're eating. Like there was no fiber coming from the right foods for her particular situation. So I still think that diversity probably, if you get the diversity, get the amount. Totally. And I also want to second that if you eat in season and you get the diversity of all the foods at different times of the year, you're going to even add more to your diversity instead of just focusing on like, well, this is what my shopping trolley has every week. It's like, fuck yeah, pumpkin season's here. Let's try the different pumpkins. And then it's like, oh, the berry season's back. Let's get all the different berries and let me try the different apples. And I just remember as a kid, and maybe you can, like, I think we're a similar age bracket. I think I remember as a kid being like, okay, you have green apples or red apples. You have orange and banana. Like that was pretty much all the fruit we had, sometimes a pear. Whereas Mm -hmm. I see kids today, I'm like fucking raspberries and they're toddlers. I'm like, dude, I didn't even get one of those toddlers, probably like a high schooler. (laughs) So I think our ability and knowledge of food now is so broad that we have so many more opportunities because of shipping around the world. And I know pineapples don't grow in Romania, for example, and you can buy pineapples there. But I think just looking at eating local and eating the broad diversity of what is local to that area is going to really enrich your health in so many ways. Absolutely. I agree. I love that. I love that working with the seasons because then you do bring in different ingredients and then you are getting that diversity for sure. Yes. Although at the moment... I have not been able to go past the imported cherries at Woolies. <laughs> You're hanging on to the cherry season. I love it. I just love, it's like a weakness. I don't know. But um, hey, look, it's it's not it's not like Whitaker's chocolate or, you know, Hershey's or something like that. Yeah. It's also imported. It's a good habit. It's a good habit. So I will, that's totally fine. Honestly, try not to most of the time, but it is an actual weakness of mine, cherries. So. <laughs> Look, if you're popping cherries like lollies, I can't really make any complaints about that for you. It's probably just if you're eating like four kilos a week, I'm like, look, maybe we should talk about that quantity, but it sounds like you've got enough. No, that's great. And um, I love your honesty. So thank you for sharing. And I hope this is just inspiring people to just recognize that sometimes, even though we might have an imbalance in our health, and I'd love to get your insight on this, is let's just say I've got high estrogen or I've got low progesterone. Like you said, both of your hormones are just like out of whack. They used to be, you know, we think, okay, I've just got to focus on the things that just do progesterone or in the the world of Ayurveda, so Indian medicine, people are like, I'm a Vada. I've just got to do all the Vada diet. And like, you're actually all doshas. You're not just a Vada. So it's nice to hear you express that it's great to have all things rather than just focusing on that one thing that doctor said, or that one thing that nutritionist said, or that one thing that dietitian said, so that we can really create a healthy picture as a whole. Yeah. So when it comes to hormone imbalances, if someone's listening to this and they're like, okay, I've got 
either high estrogen or my progesterone is really low, my luteal phase is super short or something's going on for them, knowing that adrenals, liver and gut are important, what would you recommend as like, say, the go-to five things to do first or the top things they could integrate over the next coming months? Okay. I would definitely... I would a hard probably, question. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, but I would actually start with blood sugar balance. Mm. Um, because that was a huge struggle for me. And once I sorted that out, like, so my adrenals got better just by doing that. My anxiety got better just by doing that. And then that has roll on effects to your hormones. So you might like, say you have an anxiety disorder and that's keeping your hormones out of whack. Cause that will happen. You know, it might be hard. Like it takes a while to mentally go through everything you need to go through to get through an anxiety disorder. But if you just treat it from a biological perspective, I would start with blood sugar and that will automatically treat a lot of that anxiety, for example, which will then have um, flow on effects. I would also look at reducing inflammation and if that's a problem for you, because that's a huge trigger for hormone imbalances, nutrient deficiencies. That's another big one. Stress, in my opinion, is the biggest of all. Like I, I reckon that's at the root of all of them. Yeah. So Ben, that one's that one's probably the hardest to get rid of because that takes a lot of different um, approaches from many sides. Yeah. It's not easy. I can't just say eat this food, eat this one food. It's a it's a very holistic whole body experience Mm. to get things going. Yeah, it is. And it's something else that really stands out that I think you would definitely resonate with. And you'd be like, yes, I like, that's what I'm trying to say too, is that when you bring in all of these habits and let's just say you work at balancing your blood sugar and reducing your inflammation and reducing stress, and you do those things as part of your life, instead of a task you have to complete and tick it off and then never do it again it really improves your health for the all of the future, yeah, that's not right. just the next three months of the future. And it, right. all like everything starts to change like really dramatically. So yeah, it's not about, that's why it's hard to pick. Cause you know, if you're just working on right now, it's like, okay, we'll just take this nutrient, this nutrient, focus on that food for the next three weeks. Like that helps too, but the long-term effect of whole body picture is just what people are like, I can't commit to that man. And that's yeah. what, they need to commit to, right? I agree. Like I think you need, and I always say that, like I had a very long journey to health and at the time it was horrible and I would get very discouraged over it and all that. But now I look back and I'm so grateful that I took my time because I was able to set up habits that I've now got for the rest of my life. It was a sustainable change as slow as it was. And for me, it was very slow because of my anxiety disorder. Like that just kept holding me back. But even so now it's been a sustainable thing that I can keep for pretty much the rest of my life. And, you know, obviously uh, accounting for the different stages in life as well, but yeah, yeah, sustainability is huge. And that's why I'm also, I get asked so often for like, just give me a meal plan and like meal plan. <laughs> do it. And I'm like, I, I, that's not, that doesn't work for most people. Number one, you might not even like the foods I give you, you know, what if you don't like the taste of them? And it's just, it's not that, like, that's too hard, too strong, too soon. You won't stick to it, you know? There's a lot yeah. of restriction in that too. And I think that contributes to forms of imbalanced emotional eating. And then that forms bad relationships with certain types of food, because then what happens if you get to the bloody party that you're going to, and they've got this thing, you're like, oh, can't eat that. Like, you're just not going to eat for six hours or. Yeah, exactly. exactly. You have to have the balance for sure. 
This has been amazing. Thank you so much for just unraveling all of your wisdom with us and <laughs> going with my fire, my rapid fire questions. No, um, I'm having a high adrenaline day, so I've been quite expressive today, but it's just because it's been a busy day, that's all. Well, I haven't seen you any other way and I like the expressiveness <laughs> of this. So <laughs> for everyone who's listening to Lita, who would love to learn a little bit more about you and your journey with you know your own imbalances and then what it is that you teach and share, how can they find you with all that a wonderful education stuff you love to put out in the world? Yeah, so mostly on Instagram. That's kind of where I hang out the most. Um, I do have all the other accounts as well, but I'm not on anything except for Instagram. So just my name at Talita underscore Voinia. I know that's a really hard name, but that's what it is. And then probably <laughs> just my website, which is the TalitaVoinia.au. I will pop those links in the show notes. So if you're listening to this, go to the notes of where you press play and there will be a link straight to Talita's Instagram. So you don't have to worry about that. This has been amazing. Thank you so much for sharing your time. I have one final question. Yes. We're going to change it up a bit. We're not going to talk about what we've been talking about. I ask every guest this question. So I'm excited to hear what you also have to share. I want you to think back to lead to your younger menstruating self. So when you got your period for the first time, what are three things that you wish you had have known then that you now know about your cycle today? I got my cycle quite late because I was underweight. That's why. And I was so excited for it to finally come because I was the last person in my class and I got really left behind. Okay, number one, PMS isn't normal and it doesn't have to be a part of your life. I think that I was just taught that every woman goes through it and, you know, to a degree might be acceptable, but to the degree that I had it, no. Period pain, it's not normal either. Also doesn't need to be a part of your life. What else? I, I, I think, oh, just tracking the cycle. I wish I knew that. I just wish I knew how to track my cycle. Oh, I would have, like, I always think it's a whole new world. You know, when you start <laughs> learning that, it's like, whoa, wow, look at this world. They're really good things. Thank you for sharing. They similar thing, but yeah. Everybody has such different things that people are like, fuck, I wish there was such thing as a cup. And that I wish period, <laughs> men- like menstrual underwear was around when I was blah, blah, like this. Everyone's answers are so different. So <laughs> Yeah. Everyone would have said the period pain one. No, anyway. I think I think it depends on the person really, but everyone's experiences are very different. And so that's why I love asking the question because the answers are very different. Oh, uh, but I think the top one for me would just be tracking my cycle. Like that's, yeah, I'm passionate about young girls understanding that. Like how many unwanted pregnancies could we prevent? How many fertility journeys could we possibly shorten? How much more awareness could we get of our own bodies if we just had that knowledge from a younger age? Like. Definitely that one's my top one. And it's possible to learn it now, regardless of where you are. So let's wrap on that. Great point. Thank you so much. This has been amazing. You've been so fun to chat with and all the best with your appointment. Oh, thank you. Yes. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for tuning into every episode of the Well Woman Podcast. For everything we mentioned in today's episode, you can find this in the show notes over at wellsome.com forward slash podcast. If this episode excited you, please hit follow on Spotify, which means all of my episodes will pop up in your feed weekly so you never miss a weekly drop. I'd love you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts too. Love this episode? Come and follow me over on Instagram at wellsom underscore Gemily. Say hi and share what you've taken away from this episode with me. Now, is there a bestie, sister, or a friend who you know who might be fed up, frustrated, and confused with their cycles? Are they ready to join you in awakening their cyclical essence too? 
Well, take a screenshot of this podcast episode, share it on your socials, email it, text it, or any way you need to get it to them. So together we can all live in flow, harmony, and balance with our cycles. Now, until next time, beautiful, get connected, listen to your body, and remember, body confidence all begins with living in tune with your menstrual cycle.